You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. So I'd like to thank the organizers for inviting me to speak, and in particular Ted Rosen for inviting me to speak about psoriasis. So he asked me to speak about the comorbidities of psoriasis. So that's one of the hot topics in psoriasis is about psoriatic arthritis and mental health and whether treating patients with psoriasis with biologics or other agents may improve cardiovascular disease. So we're going to touch on all these in the next hour or so. So here on the left, of course, is regular plaque type psoriasis. I think we all here know that this is a typical signs of psoriasis, indurated erythematous plaques, scaly silvery plaques. And then this is psoriatic arthritis. This is arthritis mutilans. So who here has seen it at this stage, arthritis mutilans? Okay, so I see a few hands. So this is not what you want to see come into your clinic. Earlier in my career, I would see a few patients that came in with their fingers looking just like this, really deformed fingers. And really, at this point, there's not much you can do for the patients anymore. Once they're at this stage, it's really the end point, and they're going to have deformed fingers for the rest of their lives, unfortunately. Um, But luckily, in the last few years, I rarely see this anymore. And it's because a lot of these patients are on biologics, and it helps prevent them to get to this end stage. So that's really the end point, is you want to prevent this. If you see patients, a lot of your patients like this, then you're probably not starting them enough, on enough biologics early enough. So how, how do you tell if they even have psoriatic arthritis in the first place? So there's this tool, the PEST, is a screening tool for PSA. So it's recommended for those patients with psoriasis without psoriatic arthritis to complete this survey once a year. So here are the questions here. Have you ever had swollen joints? So that would be something like dactylitis. So if you look at their fingers, the fingers may look like a very thick finger, or a sausage digit, as we call it. So that's dactylitis. So that'd be one point here. Number two, has a doctor ever told you you have had arthritis? So any joint pains or whatnot, they've, uh, that'd be pretty self-explanatory. Do your fingernails or toenails have holes or pits? So uh, nail psoriasis tends to correlate very highly with PSA. Number four, have you had, ever had pain in your heels, and specifically uh, the Achilles heel? So that's uh, enthesitis. So that's very uh, specific for PSA. Uh, and then have you ever had a finger, swollen that's completely, uh, a finger or toe that's completely swollen? So that's also dactylitis. So if you have at least three of these out of five, then that's considered positive and the, uh, indicates a referral to rheumatology. But even if they only have one or two, you still may want to consider uh, sending them to room. So let's talk about some of the newer agents that have been approved for psoriatic arthritis. So there's a Permalast. This is approved in 2014 for both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So this study was the Palace 3 trial. This is to evaluate efficacy and safety in those with uh, psoriatic arthritis. So they had about 500 patients randomized one-to-one-to-one to placebo. So they have this lower dose of the Permalast. The typical dose for us in psoriasis is 30 milligrams twice a day. So the primary endpoint was a portion of patients reaching this uh, ACR20. So this is American College of Rheumatology, uh, at least 20% improvement from their baseline uh, compared to week 16. So looking here at uh, the typical dose that we use for psoriasis, the 30 milligrams twice a day, you can see about 40% of patients reach ACR20. So just remember this number is kind of like a benchmark when we talk about some of the other medications later in this talk. So psychokinumab, has an approval also for psoriatic arthritis. So if they have psoriasis, um, you can give, give them the, and PSA, you can give them the typical psoriasis dosing, but if they have only psoriatic arthritis, you can give them basically this lower dose. So with a loading dose, is 150 milligrams every week for the first five weeks, and then every four weeks after that. 
If you want to give them with, uh, without the loading dose, then you just go straight to the 150 every four weeks. Uh, so just last week, actually, Psychokinema uh, had this uh, change in their label. So it slows progression of joint uh, damage at week 24 versus placebo and those with active uh, PSA. So we'll talk about the studies that help get this indication. So here we have the feature one study. So the two-year study with 600 patients randomized to secukinumab. So it's interesting, in this study, they actually got IV uh, at baseline in at, uh, week two and four. So most dermatologists don't really use uh, IV uh, secukinumab. I'm not even sure how you would get it this way. And when I've spoken with my, uh, my colleagues who are experts in psoriasis, we typically just use it sub-Q. But anyways, they, they wanted to look at uh, IV in this study. So compared to placebo, and then once they got the placebo, they re-randomized into the secukinumab groups. So in this two-year study, uh, about 80% of patients finished the study. So you can see here ACR20, you can see about 50% uh, of patients reached this level. So you remember, a Premalas is a little bit lower, 41%. You know, you're not supposed to compare them directly. Uh, they're obviously, they're different studies, different patient populations, but pretty much everyone does it anyways. So in the ACR50, so this is just a percent of patients reaching at least 50% improvement compared to their baseline. So you can see still pretty good numbers here in ACR70. Uh, these numbers are pretty much in line with, uh, with the TF inhibitors, maybe slightly higher as well. But this study did not actually look at it head-to-head -head versus uh, TF inhibitors. So this is the study that looked at uh, cyclokinumab and joint, joint damage uh, inhibition in terms of radiologic uh, definitions. So this is a phase three trial, another 600 patients randomized again to IV cyclokinumab versus uh, placebo. So they did show that efficacy was demonstrated in both erosion and joint space narrowing scores, and then they also reduced progression at week 24, regardless of whether they had received a TF inhibitor in the past. And also they had inhibited uh, structural damage through week 52, irrespective of whether they used methotrexate in the past. So moving on to ixikizumab. So this is also recently approved for psoriatic arthritis. So they have only psoriatic arthritis without psoriasis. Again, it's a little bit of a lower dose, so 160 milligrams at week zero, and then 80 milligrams every four weeks after that. But if they have concomitant uh, severe psoriasis, then you would give them a full dose, which is listed here. So basically, the loading dose is a little bit extended. It's 80 milligrams every two weeks. After your loading dose, 80 milligrams every two weeks or the first 12 weeks after that, and then 80 milligrams every four weeks. So typically speaking, I treat them with this full psoriasis dosing because they typically have psoriasis when they see me with their PSA. And of course, you can also use other DMARs as well. I do use methotrexate in combination with ixacuzumab and secacuzumab also. So they also have their own uh, phase three trials looking at PSA. So this study uh, is interesting. They had adalimumab uh, versus ixacuzumab versus placebo. So they didn't actually power it to be head-to-head -head versus uh, adalimumab, but you can see that numerically that there seems to be some improvement here compared to adalimumab. So here's placebo, so obviously it's much lower. Uh, adalimumab is the purple line. So numerically, if you're giving them ICSI every two weeks, it seems like numerically maybe it's a little bit better than adalimumab, uh, but they didn't actually uh, measure it head-to-head. -head. So again, here at week 16, you can see maybe about 60% of patients reached ACR20, so a little bit higher than what you saw for a Premalast. ACR50 is, again, you can see ICSI every two weeks. Again, maybe numerically a little bit higher than the purple line of adalimumab. And then 70, again, every two weeks of ICSI seems to be numerically a little bit higher than adalimumab. 
So what's my impressions of the 17 blockers versus the TF inhibitors? You know, I think because of uh, long-term safety and uh, insurance coverage, TF inhibitors are probably considered first line for many patients. Uh, say if you're starting out someone on a 17 blocker right away without failing any other biologic, maybe the insurance payer will say, oh, they need to fail a TF inhibitor first. So if you just want to avoid paperwork, it might still be reasonable to start with a TF inhibitor. Uh, but certainly, I think the interleukin-17 uh, blockers are just as effective, if not more effective, than the TF inhibitors. Uh, in my experience, uh, ustekinumab and the Premlas, they're very good for psoriasis, but they're maybe, unfortunately, not quite as good for sarcoarthritis. I've had uh, several patients on something like adalimumab, and they're doing well on the psoriasis for several years, and then after maybe five or six years, they lose some efficacy. So we switch them to ustekinumab, and then it controls their psoriasis better, but their, their uh, joints are not so well controlled. So... I've had that maybe in like 10 patients or so. So if they have severe psoriasis and mild sarcoarthritis, then I think usikimab would be fine and the premolas would be fine too if they have more of the mild uh, sarcoarthritis. So factor fiction, should PSA be treated early? So certainly fact, you want to avoid the picture we saw on the first screen. Uh, you want to avoid uh, arthritis mutilens. That's really the end point. And once you get there, they're really not going to be able to go back to normal appearing fingers. Uh, preferably with a biologic that has approval. So that'd be the three TF inhibitors, and then you've got secakinumab uh, and uh, ixikizumab. Uh, Brodiumab is uh, probably going to get some approval for sarcoarthritis in the near future, but it's not approved right now. And then the interleukin-23 blockers, they're also all going to be studied in PSA or are being studied in PSA, but they don't have any approvals yet, but probably in a couple of years they will. So moving on to the next topic, mental health and psoriasis. So is this a comorbidity or a side effect of these medications? There's two medications in particular that might have a worry of creating depression or suicide. So we'll talk about that. So at Kaiser, I'm very lucky we have a large data set of patients. Um, since 2004, we've had about 3 to 4 million patients every year using our EMR. So we collect all these patients over time. Um, so we're able to collect several thousands of patients with psoriasis. So we wanted to look at uh, these patients with psoriasis, sarcoarthritis, or ankylosing spondylitis in terms of depression or suicidal ideation or behavior. And we actually partnered up with Group Health in Seattle here. Uh, but you're probably aware that Group Health was bought out by Kaiser, so now they're Kaiser Washington. But at the time, they were separate. So between them and Kaiser Southern California, we had almost 5 million patients in this study. So you can see here 36,000 patients with psoriasis, 5,000 patients with PSA, and almost 2,000 with ankylosing spondylitis. So we did some Cox regressional uh, hazard ratios, and then we saw uh, here the incidence rate ratios. So in terms of uh, the increased risk seems to occur with all three of these disease processes. You can see it's significant. So here's confidence interval. So just to give you a primer, if the number is, if this number is above the confidence intervals, is above one, and stays, uh, the confidence intervals are above one, and they do not cross one, that means it's a significant finding. So significantly, these patients are more likely to have depression. Same thing with PSA and ankylosing spondylitis. These are all significant. Uh, does not is above one and does not cross one. And then uh, the p-value, of course, is less than 0 0.05. 0 0.05. So we also looked at uh, actually before we move on here, you can see the numbers of events. So there's lots of events here in the thousands of events of depression. So keep that in mind. So then we also looked at suicidal ideation and attempts, and you can see right off the bat that there's much fewer attempts. You can see in the hundreds or tens. So looking at the numbers here, so looks like it's maybe not significant. Uh, the confidence interval does cross one here. 
And same thing here with uh, suicidal uh, behavior. So again, not significant. But maybe because there's low numbers. So this study here from USC decided to look at suicidality in psoriasis. So it was a much larger numbers of patients. They combined uh, 18 studies, so they had uh, 330,000 patients with psoriasis. So you can see, uh, you can imagine much more numbers of uh, suicidal events. So this one is a forest plot in terms of suicidal ideation. So they're kind enough to use my study here. So you can see here, here's one. So you can see that the confidence intervals here are, do not cross one. So that's, they do show that patients with psoriasis, looking at these 18 studies across all these patients, they do have a higher risk of suicidal ideation. The same thing in terms of suicidal behavior, the same, another forest plot. Again, here's one, and the constant intervals of, the, of this diamond here do not cross one. So this seems to be, again, a significant finding. So patients with psoriasis seem to have uh, increased risk of suicidal ideation and behavior. My wife is a cat person, so now I'm a cat person. So has anyone here watched 13 Reasons Why on Netflix? So I see some hands here. I guess I should disclose that I am also a shareholder of Netflix. So the reason I bring this up is because it's very controversial. This is, uh, I, am, I also just started watching this because of my wife. I guess uh, season two just came out. We haven't watched it yet. But uh, <laughs> this girl here, Hannah, she is a student in high school. This is fiction, of course. So not live, luckily. So she's a high school student, and she's bullied by lots of people, unfortunately, at school. She has a crush on this guy, Clay. And so, unfortunately, she commits suicide. But before she commits suicide, she records a series of 13 audio tapes, old school audio tapes, and she gives them, puts them in a shoebox, and she gives them to these, uh, to friends, the people that, uh, uh, the 13 people that she felt like contributed to her suicide. That's why it's 13 reasons. And so the reason I bring this up is because it's very controversial. People that watch this show, uh, there was apparently lots of searches for suicide afterwards. Uh, there was a study in JAMA Internal Medicine where they showed that before watching this and then after looking at this, in terms of Google searches, there were lots of searches for suicide. And actually, there were two completed suicides around the world uh, where there was a similar copycat suicide where they, they committed suicide, but before that, they recorded audio tapes and they uh, gave it to people, and then they gave it to those people to circle around and say, okay, you're the reason why I committed suicide. It's very sad, of course. Um, so it was controversial because people thought, that, oh, watching this causes suicide. So that's the question is whether these two medications that we're going to discuss next, whether those cause suicide or not. So we already established that it seems like people's psoriasis already have a higher risk of suicide and depression. So two of the medications in question are Premalas and Brodalumab. So we'll talk about Premalas first. So if you look at the Premalas uh, prescribing information, You'll see here, there's some warnings about depression, emergence of worsening of depression, how to carefully weigh the risks and benefits. In terms of the numbers here, you can see slightly higher numbers compared to placebo in terms of depression. Uh, they discontinued treatment because of depression. So you can see the numbers are very low, one out of 1,300 on, on the medication versus zero out of 500 on placebo. But again, the FDA still felt like it was important to include this data that maybe there's increased risk of depression or suicide on a premolast. So we wanted to see whether this was really the case or not. So uh, Dr. Crowley had a nice article in JAD last year. So he looked at all these patients in the in uh, esteem two and one and two, uh, the major uh, phase three trials for bringing this to approval. So you can see here, in those patients treated for at least up to three years on the full dose, 30 milligrams twice a day. Really low numbers here. Two events out of, uh, you know, as you can see here, almost 1,200 patients, one event here in terms of suicide attempts. So 
I wanted to see if there's even more data out there, so I actually approached Celgene to see if there's any more data about depression and suicide. So to their credit, they did give me some information. This is all on fossil. They included all these studies. The study that I just presented, that was STEAM 1 and 2, but this includes even more of the clinical trials. So as of uh, two years ago, or three years ago, uh, there are 4,000 patients in the pool treated with the Premolest. So this is from uh, something that Celgene sent me. So this is not published. So you can see here, again, in those uh, patients in the placebo-controlled arm, about 3,000 patients, only about two attempts with suicidal ideation in attempts, so very few numbers, and the incidence rate is very low here, 0.2. And then the premolus exposure uh, period, again, very few numbers, three and three. So again, it seems like really very few cases of new onset uh, depression or suicidal attempts. Uh, what I've heard anecdotally is that if they're going to have something that's more of a mood change, not necessarily depression per se, but I've had a couple patients mention to me they feel different, but they're not necessarily suicidal or depressed per se. So moving on to brodalumab. So this was approved uh, a year ago for psoriasis. Uh, this was uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I was lucky to be one of the authors here with Dr. Lovewell. So uh, if you look at the label closely, unfortunately it does list here that it has a... Uh, in order to use this biologic, they recommend that they have failed other systemic therapies first. So that's the only biologic of the nine that, or the ten that are approved. This is the only one that seems to have this sort of uh, uh, guideline. So I think it's a fantastic drug. Works very well. I think it's very safe. However, unfortunately, during the uh, clinical trials for psoriasis, there are four completed suicides, and so that made uh, the FDA a bit concerned, as you can imagine. So they, uh, even though there's no causal association between this medication and suicidal risks, they put in this REM system. So this is a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. So it's not as painful as I pledge it when we prescribe isotretinoin, but it is one minor hurdle. So there are three components of this. So you have to be certified. So really being certified is just sign up online. It takes about a minute to sign up. And then you would have to sign a one-page form with the patient before you prescribe this. Uh, they just have to be made aware of the possible risks. So if they leave you and go to another provider, then they would have to sign a new uh, agreement form with, the, uh, with their new provider. And then lastly, uh, the pharmacies that they go to had to be certified with the program. So your typical Walgreens or CVS down the street, they may not be necessarily uh, certified yet. I think uh, Ortho is probably trying to get the, all the specialty pharmacies certified first. So that was actually probably the biggest hurdle in my experience. So this was uh, published in JAD. I was also lucky enough to be one of the co-authors here. So here's a description of the four completed suicides. So you can see here, that these four patients actually had other uh, pre-existing issues in their life. So this person here had financial stressors. This person here had legal difficulties and was likely going to jail soon. That's this one here had ongoing treatment for depression and anxiety. And then this fourth case was indeterminate. It seems to me it's probably more likely to be a drug overdose from opioids rather than a suicide per se. So it's questionable whether the drug actually causes suicide. These three already had multiple issues in their life going on already. Uh, so let's look at the uh, placebo-controlled arms. So you can see here uh, in the phase three trials, really only one case of a suicide attempt. And this is interesting here. This was uh, also published um, in a different article. They looked at this HAD score in terms of depression and anxiety, and it's, you can see that if they're given brodalumab, their score is improved from baseline down to week 12. So actually there's an improvement in their mood and in their anxiety levels. So you would think that 
they're improving, they're probably not necessarily suicidal as they're improving in their depression and anxiety scale here. So let's look here at this uh, adjusted data for um, for uh, further on in terms of the active comparator when you have usikinumab and brodiumab. So interestingly, uh, you can see even though there are lots of uh, cases here with uh, overall uh, suicidal behavior in brodiumab, if you look at the incidence rate for usikinumab, it's actually a little bit higher, 0.6 here compared to brodiumab, 0.37. So, you know, the incidence rate is a bit higher for usikinumab. And then this is an article we published in another journal uh, recently, just looking at the suicidal ideation and behavior in other trials. You can see here, this is brodiumab, uh, 0.07. So it's kind of in line with some of the other trials here. So ixekizumab may be a little bit higher, psychokinumab kind of in line, and then apremilis kind of in line. So, so after looking at all this data, would we conclude that this is a side effect or a comorbidity? In terms of side effect, I'd probably say it doesn't seem to me as a side effect of uh, using these medications. On the flip side, how about treating the psoriasis? Can it actually improve these uh, depressive symptoms? So SOLAR is a nice registry uh, put on by Janssen, a registry of about 12,000 patients. So Dr. Strober published this in uh, JAD just earlier this year. They want to look at the incidence of depressive symptoms and depression, uh, the diagnosis, and those treated with systemic therapies. So first is looking at the number of cases. You've got lots of cases here, 400 cases. So in terms of incidence rate compared to those on conventional systemics, like methotrexate, for example, um, you can see here just numerically it's uh, lower compared to what you see here on phototherapy or conventional systemics. And then doing this Cox modeling, you can see using the systemic therapy as the uh, reference, biologics is significantly lower, and this is significant. You can see the confidence interval here is below one, so this is a significant finding because it does not cross one, and it's below one, so it's less likely to occur. Um, using phototherapy compared to oral systemic therapies, not much of a difference here between uh, improvement and depression symptoms. What about the actual diagnosis of depression? So you can see right off the bat here, fewer numbers. So other case was 400 in terms of depressive symptoms here, in terms of actual depression, the diagnosis, fewer numbers. So didn't really show much here. So again, maybe not necessarily there's not a reduction, but maybe just there's not enough cases to see it. So does improving psoriasis improve suicidal ideation behavior? I'd say probably. I couldn't find a cat that said this, so Jimmy Fallon had to go be my example. So moving on to the last uh, topic. So this is my research interest. Uh, treating psoriasis improve cardiovascular disease? So multiple studies have already established that patients with psoriasis have higher risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, uh, heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular death. But a lot of these studies do not actually look at the biologics in treating the psoriasis. So using our kinds of database, I looked at CRP. So CRP, as you know, is a marker for general inflammation. So we looked at uh, psoriasis, arthritis, and rheumatoid arthritis. So we had patients uh, with the CRP at baseline and, and at the end of the study. So we had two groups, TF inhibitors plus methotrexate versus methotrexate alone. So in the combination group, you can see that those had a, a significant reduction in their CRP compared to their baseline. This, this was not seen in the methotrexate alone group. So we also looked at multiple other markers as well. So no changes in BMI, blood pressure, fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, cholesterol levels, or ALT. So this was a nice study that was just published a couple of years ago looking at endothelial dysfunction. So this is a, a pathological state of, of the state of the endothelium. 
So it's an imbalance of vasodilatation and vasoconstricting substances. So it's considered kind of an early stage for atherosclerosis. So this is a study of prospective study of 29 patients treated with uh, adalimumab for six months. And so they measured endothelial uh, function by this brachial artery reactivity. So you can see here at the end of the six months, there's a significant difference. So this is an improvement in endothelial dysfunction. So also in the same study, they also looked at arterial stiffness. So arterial stiffness, again, is an independent marker for cardiovascular disease. So the same 29 patients treated with six months for adalimumab. So they measured it with this pulse wave velocity at baseline at month six. So again, there's a significant uh, difference between baseline, and this is an improvement in the arterial stiffness. So very interesting there. So this was uh, published from uh, Nahal Metal's group. He's a, a cardiologist at the NIH. So I was lucky enough also to be in this uh, publication as well. So he studied 100 patients with psoriasis, uh, treated on any therapy, so not necessarily a biologic, but it could be any therapy, even topical therapy. And they also measured atherosclerotic plaques. So after one year, they showed improvement, of course, in their psoriasis. And this was associated with an improvement in the total plaque burden. This is a significant finding here, comes interval of less than one and also an improvement in a non-calcified uh, coronary plaque burden as well. It's, again, a significant finding. However, if the plaques were calcified, then there's no reduction despite improvement in psoriasis. So the moral of the story here is that if you're going to hope to improve atherosclerotic plaques, maybe you have to treat them sooner rather than later. Once they're, they've had psoriasis for 20 years and you say you give them a biologic, their atherosclerotic plaques are already calcified, you're probably not going to do too much anymore. It's already set in stone in terms of their coronary plaques. So it's very interesting. It kind of says that we should be treating our patients more aggressively. So even though it did show this in uh, topical treatment, um, I think any aggressive treatment and improving the psoriasis is probably helpful. So again, I've used uh, the Kaiser database for many uh, studies. So just background, Kaiser spans eight regions. It has over 12 million patients. And luckily for me, Southern California is the largest one. We're a little bit larger than Northern California. We've got 4.4 uh, million patients. I think Northern California has got like 4.2 million patients. So in terms of psoriasis, of almost uh, 20,000 patients uh, placed in one of these three mutually exclusive groups, TF inhibitors, oral therapy or phototherapy, or topical therapy, which is the reference group. So after adjusting for all risk factors, you can see those treated with TF inhibitors had about a 20% risk reduction compared to those on topical therapy in terms of major adverse cardiovascular events. So we define this as uh, myocardial infarction, stroke, and cardiovascular death. So I've also looked at this in terms of other uh, databases. So this is a market scan uh, database. So this is not Kaiser. So that's much larger. That's uh, over 180 million patients in their claims database. So we wanted to look at the major adverse uh, events, cardiovascular events, in those treated with methotrexate versus TF inhibitors. So you can see even larger numbers of patients compared to Kaiser, almost 400,000 patients with psoriasis. So in terms of actual treatments, you can see about 9,000 patients with TF inhibitors, 8,500 patients on methotrexate. So again, as we're adjusting for all risk factors, those treated with TF inhibitors seem to have about maybe a 45% risk reduction um, in terms of uh, these major CV events. So again, I should mention that these are all retrospective studies. These are not prospective. So the most we can say is there's an association. There's no causality that can be proven yet. But still, this is very impressive. And especially when you have multiple studies that seem to show several things like this, uh, it seems to indicate that maybe there's definitely an improvement in these uh, cardiovascular events. 
So we also looked at time to first uh, event. You can see here at month six, there's already uh, a significant difference. The blue line here is the TF inhibitors. The gray line here is methotrexate. So as you go on over the 10-year point, you can see this gap here just gets wider over time. We also looked at cumulative exposure. So it seems like every year there's an improvement compared to those on methotrexate. So after three years, uh, there's about a 50% risk reduction compared to methotrexate. So it's funny, I gave this talk at, at UConn just three weeks ago. And so Dr. Strober asked me, oh, what about phototherapy? Because uh, we didn't look at phototherapy in this study. So I just showed him the next slide, because it was just published recently uh, in JAD this month, or next month, I guess. So we also looked at the same uh, cohort, TAMP inhibitors, uh, versus now phototherapy. So this is an even larger uh, numbers of patients, 600,000 patients. So it extended three years past the last study. So a bit more patients with TAMP inhibitors, so 11,000 patients versus 12,000 patients on phototherapy. So again, after adjusting for all risk factors, you can see significant uh, reduction, about 23% risk reduction compared to phototherapy. And luckily, it's just very, barely significant. Here, it does not cross one here. And again, a similar graph. So this blue line here is TAMP inhibitors. Again, you can see there's significant difference. I think that's at month four right here. Month four, there's already a difference between the two treatment groups. And again, looking at cumulative exposure, those on TAMP inhibitors seem to have a significant risk reduction. Um, you can see here after 18 months, about a 30% risk reduction compared to phototherapy. So in spite of all these findings, even my own research findings, I don't recommend that patients be specifically prescribed TAMP inhibitors to reduce risk of cardiovascular disease. I think it's still too early. Um, we really need large prospective clinical trials showing that it, there really is a reduction in cardiovascular endpoints. But it does appear that TAMP inhibitors and perhaps methotrexate offer the best benefit in these patients. We are lacking still data in, meth, uh, in those patients treated with the Premalas and interleukin uh, 17 inhibitors and 23 inhibitors, but I'm working on it. So we'll, hopefully I'll get some published data out that in the next couple of years. So the MPF recognizes that many times uh, we see these patients first. They may not necessarily see their primary care doctors. Maybe they're still young and healthy. They're 30 and they don't have any other comorbidities. So they recommend that these patients be uh, checked for blood pressure, pulse, and uh, BMI every two years. And then every five years, to check a fasting glucose and lipid levels, but every two years if they have additional risk factors. So does treating psoriasis improve cardiovascular disease, factor fiction? I'd say it's still too early to say, but if I was forced to choose between the two, I would say fact. So in conclusion, if you have a patient with arthritis, definitely treat them with a biologic early. You do not want to see them coming in with arthritis mutilins five to 10 years later. It seems to me that TF inhibitors uh, have a similar efficacy uh, as interleukin-17 uh, blockers. Uh, depression and suicide are comorbidities of psoriasis, but not necessarily side effects of Premalas or brodalumab. And TF inhibitors are associated with the reductions in CRP, endothelial dysfunction, arterial stiffness, atherosclerosis, and most importantly, MACE, which is uh, myocardial infarction, stroke, and cardiovascular death. So I'd like to thank my research team, and then I'm happy to take some questions. Looks like we have lots of time for questions, so I'm happy to talk about comorbidities or just psoriasis treatments in general. I'm part of the AED MPF guidelines that was mentioned earlier this morning by Cynthia. Hopefully we're gonna submit the first guidelines to JAD maybe in a month or so.
Okay, so it looks like here the first question is, at what point would you approach a conversation about systemic therapy for a patient with mod psoriasis given the long-term cardiovascular concern? So, unfortunately, a lot of this kind of still revolves around insurance coverage. If they have mild psoriasis, say they have 2% psoriasis, I think it'd be very difficult to give them a branded agent. As to whether you can give them something like methotrexate or acetretin, I think that would be reasonable. Um, I don't... It's tough. You know, if they're... If they're obese and they've already got like pre-diabetes, I would mention to them that yes, you're at higher risk for having many other cardiovascular comorbidities. Starting you on a systemic agent may improve uh, these potential risks, but it seems like it's the biologic that may be helpful. But with your mild psoriasis, it might be difficult to actually get you a biologic. So it's a bit of a tricky situation. So usually I don't bring it up just because I know that the the insurance is not probably going to cover the biologic, unfortunately. All right, so actually, I think, okay. So the question is, do we really need brodalumab? Is it really worth a side effect profile? Why didn't we see suicides with all the other psoriasis meds if it's a comorbidity versus a side effect? So do we really need a new biologic? Well, you know, as a dermatologist specializing in psoriasis, I think it's great to have as many biologics as we can have. Yes, we have 10 biologics. We've got three more that are going to be approved in the next year or two. Um, I would say it's important to have these drugs, and, you know, even though we have 10 drugs for biologics for psoriasis, I have many patients, I have maybe of my 1,000 patients with psoriasis, 500 are treated with systemic agents. I would say 30 to 40 actually have failed four biologics or more. So yes, you would certainly need something like Brodyma if they failed everything else before that. Um, and I guess the issue is, again, it's the payers, you know. Say, yes, you have 10 biologics. Do you really need all, all 10? Maybe your payers, the payer is going to cover like three of them. So, yes, I think you still need to have multiple biologics. And uh, as I mentioned, if they fail three, five, you still need to have others that can help these patients. Okay, so I think we're starting from the bottom. So how does the efficacy of the Premlast compared to TNF inhibitors for PSA? So, unfortunately, the Premlast is a little bit weaker um, compared to the TAMP inhibitors for PSA. I think certainly it works well. Uh, if you have someone with mild psoriasis and or mild sarcoarthritis, I think a premolase is a good option, but if they have really severe PSA, I probably would pass, unfortunately, in terms of a premolase. So how would you treat new patients that develop psoriasis on a TAMP inhibitor while undergoing therapy for GI inflammatory bowel disease? Okay, so I've seen this in a few patients myself where they had Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, they're treated with like an uh, infliximab, <clears throat> and then they get palmar plantar psoriasis. So that's somewhat common. Uh, I did a literature search uh, five years ago, and there's already like 150 cases that had something like this occur. So it is something that can occur. Normally, you would say that they, you could just treat the, the TAMF-induced psoriasis with topical agents. You could use methotrexate. If you can convince the, the GI doc, they could switch to something else like uh, usikinumab. You know, usikinumab is approved for Crohn's disease. So if they have Crohn's disease, then certainly that could cover both the psoriasis and the Crohn's disease. So I think that's if you're able to, to do any of those options, those are all reasonable options. So my, I'm sorry, I don't know what SP stands for. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I I don't work with PAs at Kaiser, so we used to have a PA, but he retired a couple years ago. So my SP is a huge advocate for striatin and advises against methotrexate and other immunosuppressive due to severe side effects. What are your thoughts on this? So I still use a lot of uh, uh, acetretin. 
um, of my 500 pages on a systemic, I'd say probably still 50 are on asset trend. You know, in California, there's lots of tree huggers, and they really don't want to worry about anything with side effects. So if the patient is like that, then soritane or asset trend is definitely a good, uh, good option to use. Um, it can increase uh, cholesterol levels as to whether that in increases the risk of cardiovascular events down the line. I don't think people really know. Um, but certainly, if the patient is really worried about side effects, that's still a good option. Uh, you know, of course, you can also use it in combination with a biologic. Um, normally, I use, if I had to use a combination with a biologic and an oral agent, I would probably use methotrexate because methotrexate can reduce risk of anti-drug antibodies. Uh, acetretin would not do that, but it still could be added on. All right, so next question. What do I say to a new psoriasis patient about comorbid risk? So it's hard to say too much in the first visit, um, but I do mention to them that the most important one I would say is psoriatic arthritis. That the most evidence is there. About a third of patients will develop a PSA in their lifetime, on average maybe 10 years after the psoriasis presents. So I think that's where you really need to focus your dis initial discussions. Uh, as they come in, uh, and then you can also bring up the cardiovascular risks as well. Um, if they're really young, like in the 20s or 30s, maybe you don't necessarily need to bring it up right away, but if they're a little bit heavier, you could bring that up. But certainly over the course, you know, because these are long-term patients, you're going to be seeing them for years. Uh, so every time you can you bring them up uh, to see them, you can bring up a new comorbidity. You don't have to feel like, oh, the first visit, I had to talk about all 10 comorbidities that, that they're high risk for. So what happened to Alumia, which is tilrikizumab? So that was approved uh, about, I think, May 27 or 29 of this year. So it is approved, um, uh, or maybe March of this year. But anyways, it's already approved. I think it's, it's the problem is um, it was initially developed by Merck, and then they kind of uh, sold it off to Sun Pharma. So I, my understanding is that there's that the licensing between the two companies is kind of the holdoff. So it is coming out soon, but it's just... It'll be coming out probably end of this year. So, is there any recommendations for addition of stand with biologics to lower cardiovascular further? Um, there's no official recommendations from AED or uh, MP, for, uh, M, the MPF. Uh, in our comorbidities guidelines, I think we have five guidelines. The comorbidities, I saw the draft already. I don't think we're saying anything about statin use. Uh, so, I think that would be directed more to their general. Health. So, say if they're, they're seeing a, their primary care doctor or their cardiologist, then I would just go along with what they're saying. But in terms of the dermatologist's point of view, I would say we don't necessarily prescribe statins to reduce uh, CV risk yet. Is skin presentation an effective indicator for internal psoriasis? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by internal psoriasis. Maybe you're talking about psoriatic arthritis or maybe the systemic inflammation. If, if that's the, uh, the, what the question is asking, I would say yes. Um, now Meta, the, the cardiologist I mentioned earlier, um, he spoke at a Stockholm meeting three years ago, which I'm actually going to leave for the airport right now for the next meeting this year, later this uh, week. He showed that even patients with one palmful of psoriasis, their aortas, in terms of inflammation, their aortas look about 20 years older compared to someone without psoriasis. So it seems to me that, yes, the skin is a very good indicator for internal uh, systemic inflammation of psoriasis. What are my thoughts about Otezla plus methotrexate for PSA? You know, I don't really use that combination that much, to be honest. Uh, I usually go with a biologic, uh, but I think certainly uh, Apramalast and methotrexate could be used uh, for, uh, for PSA. Uh, remember, methotrexate is actually not FDA approved for PSA. We use it all the time, but it's actually not approved. 
So what's my personal experience with mood change with the Premalas? So yeah, I kind of mentioned this earlier. Um, so I would say I've treated maybe about 120 patients with the Premalas. I've seen maybe two or three patients talk about this mood change. Uh, when I spoke at UConn just three weeks ago, Dr. Strober said something similar. A few patients, handful of patients, have this mood change. So it's not necessarily depression per se. It's not suicidal thoughts. It's just they feel different. What about the use of biologics for the history of melanoma? So again, there's really no labels saying that there's a risk of increased risk of melanoma. If they have a history of melanoma, and that's where it's tricky because, as you can imagine, all these clinical trials looking at biologics, they, don't, they exclude all these patients with prior history of uh, systemic uh, cancers, at least for five years, sometimes altogether completely. Uh, I personally don't worry about uh, the recurrence of melanoma. If they, you know, the thing is, if melanoma is really going to recur, it's going to recur. It's just a bad cancer. It can come back 10 years later, 20 years later, when they, when they think they're cleared. You just need to have a discussion with the patient and say, these medications, these biologics, there's no evidence that say that they cause recurrence of internal cancers. There's no studies that show that that's the case with melanoma. But in theory, these biologics may suppress the immune system a bit. Actually, I like to use the term immunomodulate. They, don't, they suppress the immune system very specifically. But you could say that maybe they suppress the immune system very slightly. So in theory, that could increase the risk of melanoma. If you're really worried about the melanoma risk, then there's certainly other options. Obviously, you can't do phototherapy for them, but acetrend would, would be a good option. Acetrend does have some anti-cancer properties, skin cancer properties, so that'd probably be a good option for these patients. How do you decide between uh, ixekizumab and secukinumab? I still don't like to use trade names while I'm on the podium. Well, you know, at Kaiser, uh, secukinumab is on formulary and ixekizumab is not. But that being said, um, I'm sorry to my Novaris colleagues in the, in the audience, but it seems to me that secukinumab drug survival is not quite as good if they've failed multiple biologics. So remember, in the old days, we had four biologics before secukinumab. We had the three tamfetamivirs, and then we had usikinumab. So that usikinumab was approved in 2009. Secukinumab was approved in 2014. So I had a big bolus of patients who had failed all four of those biologics for those five years after, after Ixacumab was approved. So after uh, Ixacumab was approved in 2014, then I had maybe like 100 patients that were really not controlled well on any of those four prior biologics. So I had to dump them all onto uh, Ixacumab, and a lot of them actually didn't really do that well, unfortunately. They, they tended to have some um, primary failure uh, within three to six months, and then I had to switch them to something else. And I published that in JAD. Um, as a, le- a research letter, I think we had maybe 30-some patients with, with that sort of experience. Maybe about half of them didn't do so well after three to six months. And that's also been shown by other investigators as well. Sylvia Sue, now at uh, Temple, she was the first to publish that in JAD. Uh, maybe two years ago, she had about 100 patients, and she also showed that maybe around three to six months, a lot of patients on psychokinumab had tended to uh, had drug survival, uh, or drug failure, rather. And it's because probably they had failed multiple biologics. But if you have a biologic-naive patient, I think psychokinumab works excellent. I've not seen that uh, drug survival loss. Uh, there was something also published in the British Journal of Dermatology uh, using the Danish database, uh, just published in February of this year. They looked at all five, at the time, biologics, uh, the five most recent, uh, the oldest biologics, including the, four tam- the three tamatamides plus usikinumab plus psychokinumab, and they showed that, um, unfortunately, psychokinumab seemed to have the lowest drug survival, even lower than uh, uh, etanercept. But again, maybe it's because... Um, all those patients that failed multiple biologics before. My experience with uh, ixikizumab, rather, is that the drug survival seems to be very good, even though they may have failed 
up to four or five biologics at the time, they still do quite well on ixekizumab. And so we're going to publish, we have, uh, we're going to submit that to uh, JAD probably in a month or two. So I have maybe 20 patients on ixekizumab, and all of them have failed three to five biologics, and maybe only three have failed ixe so far. All right, that was a long answer. I'm tired. So any evidence of vegan diet in reducing psoriasis? So this is very controversial. My feeling is that diet really doesn't change psoriasis per se. There's some anecdotal evidence that maybe nightshades like eggplants or whatnot, or uh, shellfish maybe, that avoiding those can improve psoriasis. But you know, I need to see data. I've not really seen any data that that's the case. So as TF inhibitors exacerbate heart failure but may mitigate cardiovascular disease, how do we screen patients without, with no, without known heart failure who may be at risk? Well, so the heart failure, yes, yeah, so there is that concern. If they have uh, near class, uh, uh, class three or four heart failure, then they certainly should not receive any TF inhibitor. They could probably get any other biologic, or they can get any other biologic. I would not be worried about that. Um, but these patients, if they have near class three or four heart failure, you're going to tell. They're, they're very sick. I don't think you're just going to show up one day with a patient that's just looking normal and then they have undiagnosed heart failure at class three or four. But I mean, I guess that's a concern. I guess you could ask them, if you're really concerned, you can ask them how do they do with just walking around a block? Are they, are they short of breath or whatnot? And then if they are, then you could certainly avoid a TAMP inhibitor in these patients. Options for HIV plus psoriasis. So I published a case report about this. Uh, so, uh, first of all, the MPF had some guidelines about this. This is probably 10 years old now. They, at the time, they said that biologics should be considered third line because, of course, you don't want to suppress their immune system any more than what they already have. Um, but since then, uh, a primalas has been approved. So I think a primalas actually works quite well in those with psoriasis and HIV. I have three patients with both psoriasis and HIV. Um, their vial loads have not increased, and their CD4 counts have not uh, I'm sorry, the vial loads have not increased and the CD4 counts have not decreased on the premolas. And their psoriasis is either 100% uh, controlled or maybe they just have 1% or 2% left. So I think that's a good option. But if they can't get that, I think a premolas, um, acetrin or phototherapy could be used. And you certainly can still use a biologic, but I would just use that in ca cautiously. PSA with history of lymphoma. So as you're aware, if they have psoriasis, they have a higher risk of lymphomas. It's probably the same for PSA as well. I would probably avoid TF inhibitors. You know, on the TF inhibitor labels, it does say there's a risk of hepatosplenic lymphoma, which is not a real concern in my opinion. I think that was more because of the GI studies where there are also other things, plus the biologic, like azathioprine, um, which is a very strong immunosuppressant. So if they had a history of lymphoma, I'd probably avoid TF inhibitors. If you had to pick a biologic, I think uh, you can remember the 17 blockers, probably 23 blockers would be fine too. But if you're just worried in general about any biologic, then of course you go with acetretin, probably would avoid methotrexate, probably avoid cyclosporin. Uh, Primalas, I think that would be reasonable, especially if they have PSA indication. Why not use Otesla, Primalas, before a biologic due to better safety profile? Well, you know, the problem is Primalas is not really effective for really severe psoriasis. Say if they got 20% PSA, uh, yes, I know it is approved for moderate severe psoriasis, but it's just not that effective, unfortunately. Sorry, Seljane. But um, it is, it's, you know, I actually tend to use a Tesla, a Premolas more for mild, moderate uh, disease. So if they have less than 10% PSA, I think a Premolas works very well. 
but I don't necessarily use it as a uh, agent before a biologic. If they need a biologic, they need a biologic. You know, 10% or more. If they've got like 5% plus PSA, then they need a biologic. And I'm not sure I'd necessarily say it has a better safety profile. Um, if you're talking about like cancer risk, yes, the TF inhibitors have this concern about lymphomas and uh, skin cancers, but the 17 blockers, you know, there's really there's no black box worrying about any cancer risk there. Uh, a Premlas, you know, it's safe, yes, but they have lots of GI tol tolerability issues. All right, any other questions? I've given lots of talks, like 100 talks around the world. I don't think I've answered so many questions in one session before. So but that's good. I'm glad you guys, it's nice to have it interactive rather than just me talking for an hour straight. Thank you very much. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.